Should children take the COVID vaccine? Are Canadian medical doctors punished for correcting COVID health guidelines? Why are expensive experimental vaccines favored over safe treatments? Is there reason to believe death risk due to the COVID vaccine could be even higher a year or two from now? How do prominent critics stand up to the threats and menacing put forward by the CDC and other high-ranking agencies? This week on the Global Research News Hour, as COVID-19 rages on, we engaged two doctors challenging the standard approach, especially the COVID vaccine. In our first half hour, we speak with prominent Dr. Stephen Malthouse about the move to now immunize 12-year-olds and the general punishment stared by doctors questioning official COVID-19 narratives. Then our second half hour, we are joined by the renowned internist, professor of medicine and leading fighter against COVID, Dr. Peter McCullough, about his early treatment with medicines, his criticism of the vaccine, and the challenges faced by dissident COVID doctors in today's America. On this week's program, doctors versus health authorities, clinically proven drugs versus the jab, who will prevail? Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of June 4th, 2021. The program is funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on occupied Anishinaabegaki, the homeland of the Métis and historical territory of the Nahiwak and the Nakota. I'm your host, Michael Welch. The show seeks to provide listeners with access to analysis of some of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our shows are features on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States and available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca. We'll begin our show with news notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. Beware of what you say, what you read, what you write, where you go, and with whom you communicate, because it is all being recorded, stored, and catalogued and will be used against you eventually at a time and place of the government's choosing. This far-reaching surveillance has paved the way for an omnipresent, militarized fourth branch of government, the surveillance state, that came into being without any electoral mandate or constitutional referendum. Indeed, long before the National Security Agency, or NSA, became the agency we love to hate, the Justice Department, the FBI, and the Drug Enforcement Administration were carrying out their own secret mass surveillance on an unsuspecting populace. Even agencies not traditionally associated with the intelligence community are part of the government's growing network of snitches and spies. Just about every branch of the government, from the Postal Service to the Treasury Department, and every agency in between, now has its own surveillance sector, authorized to spy on the American people. That comes from the article, Make Way for the Snitch State, the All-Seeing Fourth Branch of Government, by John W. Whitehead and Nisha Whitehead, posted June 2nd, originally published at the Rutherford Institute. Every day, new information is coming to the fore, such as this animal pharmacokinetic study, 
which shows that the injected vectors ended up in different organs, especially ovaries and spleen. Canadian researcher Dr. Bridal shared his concerns on recent findings of biodistribution of lipid nanoparticles and the spike proteins in injected people. Tragically, panic-stricken masses are deluded with the propaganda that these injections are 95% efficacious. This is a useless metric based on relative risk reduction. The absolute risk reduction is around 1%. That comes from the article, COVID Vaccines, a Faltering Framework, by Dr. Sadaf Gilani, posted June 2nd, originally published in Off Guardian. Macquarie voiced dismay at CDC and White House officials who routinely push for near-universal vaccination in spite of the data on natural immunity. In fact, governing bodies are guilty of demonizing people who decide not to get vaccinated even when they have recovered from a COVID infection and have the antibodies forming a natural immunity. So incensed was the professor by the intellectual negligence displayed by public health officials that he actively discouraged recourse to their advice on COVID-related matters. Quote, I never thought I'd say this, but please ignore the CDC guidance. Unquote. Quote, One of the biggest failures of our current medical leadership is ignoring natural immunity, he said. They've given out no guidance to those who've had the infection. They just tell them to get the vaccine as if they don't already have antibodies, and they demonize them when they're hesitant, unquote. That comes from the article, Johns Hopkins Prof. One of the biggest failures of our current medical leadership is ignoring natural immunity, by David McClune, posted June 2nd, originally published at LifeSite News. <laughs> Have you wondered why effective life-saving medications and therapies were actively and aggressively suppressed? Have you wondered why world-renowned scientists, virologists, and epidemiologists were banned on Twitter and removed from Facebook? Have you wondered why all of the cable news channels and print media covered daily developments with the same breathless hysteria as their competitors? It's very hard to look back on the events of the last 15 months and not suspect that there is more to this COVID story than meets the eye. That while the infection does in fact kill mostly older people with multiple underlying conditions, that perhaps the virus has been used to promote a political agenda of which we know very little. Even so, there are things of which we can be reasonably certain such as that all of the fear-mongering and hysteria has been suspiciously manipulated to promote universal vaccination. That comes from the article No Vax Rebellion, Resist, Refuse, Reject by Mike Whitney, posted June 2nd. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar. According to the Government of Canada website, there were, as of June 1st, 
25,566 deaths related to COVID-19. As of May 22nd, 61.87% of Canadian adults, roughly 11,772,000, have received at least one dose of the COVID vaccine. Now the time has come to consider adolescents to get inoculated. According to Government of Canada information, the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine has now been fully approved for children 12 years old and up. The Government of Canada website informs the public, stating, quote, While evidence suggests that children infected with COVID-19 normally experience mild symptoms, serious illness can occur at any age. Vaccines are essential to help end the pandemic. It's important for everyone, including adolescents 12 to 18 years of age, to get vaccinated against COVID-19 when it's their turn, unquote. Not all doctors, not to mention the general public, is on board with this information. To shine some light on the negatives associated with these vaccines and on COVID-19 messaging generally, we got hold of Stephen Malthouse. He's a Canadian physician who's been in family medical practice for more than 40 years and a member of the College of Physicians and Surgeons of British Columbia since 1978. He's a passionate advocate for homeopathic healing, which he practices. He's also president of the Canadian Integrated Association and physician lead for the Canadian Health Alliance. He's involved with the Declaration of Canadian Physicians for Science and Truth, challenging the College of Physicians and Surgeons of Ontario and other medical outlets where they consider an unethical statement to the country's physicians. After the vaccine has been um, offered to millions of people, we have uh, seen significant impacts, including thousands of deaths. Uh, This is according to the CDC's VAERS measures. Uh, However, you know, there have been 60 million shots have been given out. Also, we don't know for certain that the vaccines were responsible for many of the deaths, so the major agencies say it's safe. So, So what is the view of yourself and your colleagues about the safety of this drug? Yeah, it's pretty hard to determine the safety when you've only had two months worth of human trials. And most people don't realize that they're still in phase three trials in Canada and around the world for for these uh, novel uh, vaccines. They're not really vaccines. They are a new type of technology that that has never been used in humans um, uh, before, particularly on this this large scale. And uh, unlike regular vaccines, these uh, injections do not prevent transmission disease or catching it. So it means that they won't have play any role in terms of people being able to get back to normal because they'll still have to wear masks and socially distance because there's no evidence in the studies, which weren't designed to show the evidence that uh, they prevent the transmission of disease. So, you know, there's, there's nothing really to be said for these shots. Um, people have been, I think, misled uh, in thinking that they're going to get their lives back and everything will go back to normal, but it's not going to happen like that. In fact, once you get one, you're going to get two, and then you're going to be getting boosters every six to 12 months. And uh, they really, it's nothing to do with the virus, these, these shots. Uh, we've learned that they're, they're very ineffective in terms of preventing uh, anything in the people that receive them. The, the numbers you hear are like 95% effective for adults and the most recent um, they touted uh, statistics, 100% effective in children between 12 and 15 in, in, in the studies for the Pfizer uh, BioNTech uh, shots is actually not true. That's, that's, that's really a, a twisting a maneuvering of the, of the statistics to make it look good. When in fact, uh, in, the, in the childhood ones, uh, the Pfizer 12, 15 year olds, the effectiveness, the, 
the absolute risk reduction was only 0.7%. So that's uh, seven out of 10, 7 out of 1,000 uh, uh, kids would benefit from that in terms of only a reduction of their symptoms. In other words, it would, mild, it would perhaps mildly reduce their symptoms, but it does not was not shown to prevent hospitalization, ICU admissions, or deaths. In fact, in the control group, there were two, over the 2,000 children, they divided it in half. And in the placebo group, they had only eight children that really came down with any symptoms and had a positive PCR test. So you're saying, you're saying that, uh, yeah, like, so you, you've got certain groups and I mean, what, they've, they've eliminated a, a certain amount of children from consideration until they, they only have a, a small number to begin with? Well, they select those children very carefully. So these aren't children with, with comorbidities or other illnesses. They're very healthy. And that's typical of, of doing a trial that you, you plan to have come out in a certain way is to only choose the most healthy people. So for example, there were no uh, pregnant women in the, in the adult trials uh, that was definitely screened against. And yet now they're recommending that you go and talk to your doctor. And if your doctor knows anything, which most of them are very poorly informed, uh, then you can make a decision with your doctor about whether or not you go ahead and have one of these uh, COVID shots. Mm -hmm. So it's the same in, in the children one. They, you know, they select a very, it's very selective in terms of who goes into that trial. And we only had 2,000 kids, right? That's not much to, enough. And between in the, in the Pfizer study um, where they, they looked at um, the little bit older group, because, you know, adults would be 18 and up. But in the Pfizer, they also looked at the 16 and 17-year-old group. And in that, they only had a total of 283 uh adolescents enrolled in that, I mean, 283 kids, which you divide it into half for the placebo and for the, the shot groups. And that's not enough to then start rolling that out for the millions and millions of kids around the world. But that's what they, they're doing. Are there potentially any other extra issues raised in the case of children? I mean, special vulnerabilities, stuff like that? Absolutely. Yeah, because we know that children generally, uh, a couple of things. One is they, if they get COVID, they get mild cases if they get any symptoms at all. They, they don't die from it. Statistically, the death rate for children is zero in Canada and in the United States. We have had some children who are hospitalized and we had some deaths which were called COVID. Um, but there's these children, as what we know from what we're the available material from Health Canada had comorbidities. So they may have more likely died of, uh, with COVID rather than of COVID. And so we actually, in this age group, the, the survival rate for COVID infection is 99.9%. I mean, if you got that on an exam, you'd be pretty happy. So uh, that means that they're not a, a susceptible group, and yet we're going to be uh, giving them a shot for which we've seen, and just in these short trials, that uh, the adverse effects were, were pretty excessive um, up in the 90%. I mean, we had 90% of these children had pain at the site of, um, in their arms. 77%, uh, 77.5% had fatigue. Now, fatigue is a generalized issue. We don't normally get that after you have a shot unless it's having a systemic effect. Now, um, people may say, well, that's your immune system you know, kicking in and really doing a great job. That's terrific. But actually, this is not the case. This is an adverse, adverse effect from these shots. And we had you know, headaches, 75%. These kids had chills. There were almost 50% of the kids uh, had, had chills, which are you know, where you're shaking. Uh, muscle pains in 42%. And um, we even had joint pains, for example, in 20% of the children in that trial that got the shots. And, you know, half of those kids were, were lost to follow up. In other words, they say two months, but in fact, at the end of two months, they only had half the kids still in the trial being followed. So uh, that's just the, and, and they only follow them for a week after the shot. So, you know, this is not a safety study, uh, which is properly uh, performed. 
And the, what we did see, even an improperly performed one, was a lot of adverse effects, uh, far in excess of what these kids demonstrate with COVID. The other thing we know about COVID is why, why give it to shots to kids? Because the shots don't prevent transmission. That's one thing. But also we know that the kids don't transmit anyway. They don't transmit up the chain to teachers or adults. So again, they're not contributing as like spreaders of this disease. Uh, it's, it's an adult disease um, in terms of the, uh, the spreading of it. Okay. Um, I'm going to play a, a piece of clip from uh, an interview I recorded. I guess it was several months ago, uh, but uh, he was responding to the idea that, the, uh, that, 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 that there are other reasons for uh, getting vaccine for kids besides the, the safety. So I'll, I'll play it. I hope you can hear it. If I find that the, uh, that the risk is low enough, I know what that is. The risk of the vaccine is low enough. I know what the risk of the disease is in somebody my age. I'm 60 years old. I have lots of comorbidities. If they've got a reasonable vaccine, I take it in a second. My kids, they'll probably choose to take the vaccine too, not because they necessarily have a high risk themselves, but they'll take it because they love me and they love their grandparents and they want to protect their, their friends and neighbors, right? So you don't take it just to protect yourself. You take it to protect the people that you love. Okay, so it's uh, Anand Kumar uh, speaking on the the subject. Uh, so, I mean, can you res- basically saying if you vaccinate them to protect their loved ones, uh, and not just the kids, but the loved ones as well? So, did you have any response to that? Well, what has been shown to do that in the adult trials or the child trials that didn't show that you can prevent giving the infection to a loved one. So, there's there's no point taking it thinking you're going to be able to visit your grandmother because that won't happen, right? She'll have the same risk as whether you took it or didn't take it from the point of view of contagion. So that's a, that. you can forget that right there. <clears throat> Secondly, what this gentleman was saying is that there, you, know, you balance the risk and the benefits, right? So in this case, there's no benefit from the shot. There's nothing been shown to benefit children. You know, eight out of a thousand kids uh, to try to prevent that, that's where we get the uh, um, absolute risk reduction of only 0.7%. So you're going to reduce a few symptoms in eight kids out of a thousand. You got to give them all those thousand kids a shot, right? And uh, and we're actually talking we're we're actually talking about more than a thousand. But so you've got to give those those kids a shot. But that I mean that you've got to give all those kids a shot, subject them all to the risks to benefit eight maybe, right? And those eight will only benefit by not having a runny nose, or maybe a cough, or maybe a mild fever. But you're giving them fevers, you're giving them body aches, giving them headaches, you're giving them muscle pain, you're giving them joint pain in exchange for reducing a few symptoms, and they're still going to be contagious. So I can't see there's any upside to this. Okay. Uh, Dr. Malthouse, another subject that I wanted to discuss with you was about the, the pushback to doctors like yourself, the College of Physicians and Surgeons of Ontario, as well as the BC College of Physicians and Surgeons, uh, had issued statements forbidding phys- physicians from questioning or debating any or all of the official measures imposed in response to COVID-19. They said that those who do would be threatened with punishment, uh, investigations, and disciplinary action. I've always wondered why we only hear one side of the story, uh, although the media itself uh, probably has orders thrust on them. But would you like to comment on, on these orders? 
Sure. Well, I think these these uh, this is the type of thing which has been held over doctor's head for a long time, but it's usually behind closed doors. In other words, you get a telephone call or you get a call that comes through a hospital administrator telling you that you can't do this, you can't do that. Otherwise, there's a risk of you losing your license and um, all that that entails. So this College of Physicians and Surgeons of Ontario came out, I think it was probably about three to four weeks ago with a statement uh, saying that um, doctors were not able to, to speak out against any of the public health policies uh, to do with COVID treatment, even though we know that there, for example, um, uh, you know, lockdowns have, have obviously been extremely harmful, not just to the health, both physical and mental health of patients, but also to their financial health. And uh, um, so doctors were essentially told they cannot speak out against any of, of these policies, which include uh, lockdowns, uh, masking, um, social distancing injections of these so-called vaccines. And, um, and of course, doctors, our job is really to look at the, at the literature, to look at the research and examine it um, carefully and to make decisions based on the patient we see sitting in front of us. That's, that's our ethical code is the patient comes first, not the policy. Policy serves a general broad sweeping things, which in fact become outdated and um, are incomplete based on the information that becomes available. So what they've done is they've tried to tie doctors' hands with the threat of punishment, such as taking away their licenses to practice medicine by coming out with these statements. And College of Physicians and Surgeons came out with that first one, they made it public. Um, essentially, they've been doing that all the way along is threatening doctors, to, if you step outside the lines, you're gonna be punished. They've been doing that for some time. And of course that keeps doctors you know, hushed, gagged and uh, unwilling to, to examine um, the research. They kind of do what they're told and that's not the what type of doctor you want. You want a doctor who can think for himself and also to apply that information to you as the patient. So it, we, we consider that unethical. And, uh, and then the, the College of Physicians and Surgeons of British Columbia came out with another one with, a week later, exactly the same saying, you know, that you can't speak out against these things. You can't be anti-vaccine, anti-masking, anti-distancing, anti-lockdowns, all that stuff. Pretty much echoed it. Um, they even sent a, 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 the College of Physicians and Surgeons of Ontario sent a little email around to the members it wasn't made public. It was a you know to members email saying that uh, they they didn't want to get people upset. They were just trying to you know give a light touch to this. And it's really only a few doctors that are speaking out that they're that they're going to go after that type of thing. So, um, but they didn't retract anything of their initial statement. So, what to do as a doctor? You know, this is unethical as far as we're concerned. It does not put the patient first, which is and, and that that puts the patient in harm's way, which goes against the mandate of the colleges. So. Um, a group of doctors put out a petition, well, actually a declaration uh, called um, Declaration um, from Canadian Doctors, Canadian Physicians for uh, Science and Truth. And this was a petition which garnered hundreds of doctors, Canadian doctors signatures, um, agreeing with the fact that uh, we should put our patients first. And that's, that's what our oath is about. Wow. Um, and the media are, are getting involved too, right? I mean, uh, I saw last month you, your name was uh, in a lot of hot water with the mainstream media. A CBC article claimed you were posting misinformation and conspiracy theories. And, and you spoke to uh, at an anti-vaccine and anti-masking event. Uh, you didn't respond to the articles, but um, well, the BC College and Physicians and Surgeons and the First Nations 
Health Authority put out in a statement, the following statement, they said, this kind of misinformation is a violation of public trust as well as the ethical obligations of doctors whom members of the public tend to trust implicitly when it comes to matters of health. Would you care to comment uh, on that statement? Yes, uh, doctors do have the trust of the populace. That, that, that is true. And uh, for that reason, they have a responsibility and their responsibility is to stand up and to speak the truth and not allow themselves to be gagged by any college or with any policy. That, that's, that's the thing of being trustworthy is that you will actually stand up and, and say what is the right thing to say. And to warn your patients, if there's a, a shot coming their way from Pfizer or any other company, that's gonna be dangerous to them and to their children. That is the responsibility of the physician. And it's unethical to do the opposite. So in fact, you could just take that statement by uh, the College of Surgeons and the First Nations Health Authority and turn it around. It's, it's actually breaches public trust not to speak out when you see something is wrong in a policy or a government uh, rollout. That's what we've been doing. And that's why we're kind of in hot water. You know, as well as I do that the mainstream media you know, is, is get 70% of their, of their income from the pharmaceutical companies, the ones that are actually making these shots. And that the, there's a great deal of, of censorship going on and there's only one side of the narrative being, being told. And uh, people are learning that the experts cannot be trusted. So in fact, this is having the reverse effect. The more they try to clamp down and censor doctors, the more, um, the greater the loss of trust in the profession. And it's gonna be very hard to come back from where we are right now because a lot of people do not trust their doctors and uh, they certainly don't trust their, you know, the doctors' regulatory bodies, who are who are handicapping them. Yeah, you know, um, I I mean I know that there are you know, the speech like like hate speech and you know not saying there's a fire in a crowded building and that sort of thing. But this goes beyond that. It's like you can only have one side talking and the other side should just shut up. I mean, it is, is this not a, a violation? Of, of free speech is not a violation of science. The, the idea that you can't have an actual conversation. I mean, I'm okay with them having their you know say about the the vaccines being good, but nobody to counter that. So so how, how is that? Like I say, a violation of free speech, violation of science. I think both, and uh, the Canadian physicians for science and truth is just that: science and truth. And those are the two things which are being uh, violated by this this type of policy that doctors can't speak out. So yeah, you're absolutely right. If, if you want to move ahead, you have to always have debate and discussion. You can't just silence the other side of the debate. And when you do that, people should be seeing that as a red flag, that there's something going on here, which is not to do with a virus and not to do with pu protecting public health. If we just look over the last year and a half, it's evident that every public health policy that's been rolled out across Canada, and in fact, around the world, has been destructive to people's health. Not one is, you know, even using, you know, toxic hand sanitizers, so many of them have been recalled by Health Canada. The masking doesn't work. We know that. The evidence is very, very clear about that. In fact, it, it not only doesn't work to prevent transmission, but it also is extremely harmful to people. And we're seeing all sorts of things like from pneumonias to mask mouth, that's infections of the mouth, to, uh, uh, to people with uh, fainting illnesses, hits, head injuries and seizures following that. I have a patient like that. And uh, so we're... We're seeing that that policy didn't work. And of course, lockdowns did not work. It caused uh, at least a hundred, a thousand percent increased rate of um, life years lost from lockdowns. And these jabs, I think we're seeing that uh, if you look at the VAERS report, which you referred to earlier, which is the vaccine adverse event 
uh, reaction uh, uh, reporting system, that that uh, is the US system. A Canadian system completely broke. It's, they, they're rejecting, um, my colleagues sent in uh, the, the forms and they're being rejected as um, irrelevant, not, not connected to the jab at all, when it's obvious clinically that they are. They're being completely uh, ignored, sent back, lost, things like that. So, and you know, public can't make a report in Canada. It has to go through your doctor. And if doctors who aren't giving the jabs, you know, a person comes in two weeks later and says, I've, you know, I've been weak on this side of my body for two weeks, the doctor say, well, you know, vaccines are safe and effective, you know, and, and will not put in a report for you, which takes some effort and time, maybe up to a half an hour to put it in. And, uh, and then if you get enough rejected, you go like, well, what's the point of this? So public can't even report. But in the United States, we're seeing there's, there's been more than, I think it's more than 4,400, 4,400 deaths that are associated with the shot so far. And we know from two very interesting studies, one done more recently, but also one done by Harvard, uh, uh, almost, ten, I guess, 10 years or so ago, showing that only 1% of, of the reports are sent into the, this, this reporting system, the VAERS system. And if only 1%, then if we do a calculation of, you know, 44 uh, 4,400 uh, people have died associated with this shot. And let's say some didn't, but let's say a majority, let's say 4,000 were strongly associated, uh, then that means we're looking at, you know, 400,000 people that have died from this. And, uh, and that's not accounting things like blindness, deafness, Bell's palsies, paralysis, transverse myelitis, all the other things which have been associated with these shots. So, you know, People need to start doing their own research because what we're getting over the airwaves, essentially it's a lie. It's propaganda, one-sided story, and the people that have the other side of the story are being censored, such as doctors. Fascinating. Dr. Malthouse, I, I thank you for your unique role in bringing this information to the attention of our listeners. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. We've been speaking to Stephen Malthouse, uh, an MD based in British Columbia. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcasting from CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and from partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. Before we go further, let's re-examine part of the case for embracing the jab. Dr. Allison McGeer came on our show back in January. She's a specialist in internal medicine and is a Canadian infectious disease specialist in the Sinai Health System. During the COVID-19 pandemic, McGeer has studied how SARS-CoV-2 survives in the air. Here's a clip of her pro-vaccination argument. Living exposed to COVID-19 is not a risk-free thing to do. Um, COVID-19 is a dangerous virus. 3,000 people a day are dying from it in the United States. Um, and so it's, it's a balance, you know, which is a riskier thing to do, get the vaccine or get COVID. And no questions from the data we have at the moment um, for a great many adults, particularly older adults, getting the vaccine is a safer option. We can expect to see a lot more mRNA vaccines out there um, uh, now that we found they work so well against, uh, against COVID-19, um, but they have been subject to exactly the same and very stringent safety assessments that any vaccine comes to market that has. This is not that we have not applied the same safety standards to these vaccines. It's just that because COVID is out there and because we know how dangerous it is, we've been 
careful to do them really quickly. So it's, it's involved a great many people and a lot of their time, um, but we haven't cut corners on any of the safety assessments. These vaccines got tested in animals. They got tested in humans in small numbers initially. They've been through the entire usual process for vaccines. Um, it's just been more quickly than we usually do it. That was pro-vaccination infectious disease specialist Alison McGeer. But it is important to note that not all physicians have the same view. In fact, in the United States, a profoundly major and credible voice is sounding up on Operation Warp Speed, dropping the medication of the illness with drug treatments rather than waiting until the patient is in hospital or dying. Here's an excerpt of him speaking at the Senate Committee on Health and Human Services. What has gone on has been beyond belief. How many of you have turned on a local news station or a national cable news station and ever gotten an update on treatment at home? How many of you have ever gotten a single word about what to do when you get the handed the diagnosis of COVID-19? No wonder. That is a complete and total failure at every level. There's not a single media doctor on TV who's ever treated a COVID patient. Not a single one. What happened in around May, it became known that the virus was going to be amenable to a vaccine. All efforts on treatment were dropped. The National Institutes of Health actually had a multi-drug program. They dropped it after 20 patients, said we can't find the patients. The most disingenuous announcement of all time. And then warp speed went full tilt for vaccine development. And there was a silencing of any information on treatment. Any. That speaker was Peter McCullough. He is an internist, cardiologist, and professor of medicine at Texas A&M University School of Medicine. He's on the Baylor-Dallas campus and has been integrally involved in the response to COVID-19. In addition to being a doctor involved in academia, he is the editor of two major journals and is one of the most published doctors in the domain of heart and kidney in the world. According to his Curriculum Vitae, which extends over 160 pages, he is a manuscript reviewer in 123 medical journals, including the Lancet and New England Journal of Medicine. Dr. McCullough is sounding the alarms about proven treatments involving drugs like ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine in combination with other medicines, which are being shoved aside in favor of the holiest of holies, the mRNA vaccine. The Global Research NewsHour reached out to McCullough earlier this week. I first asked Dr. McCullough to explain the rise and fall of hydroxychloroquine and similar treatments rather than vaccines. Well, we've learned a lot over the last year. And with respect to medical therapy, the first comment I'd make is that we've really learned that the viral infection is very treatable and it can be treated with many different drug programs. The principles are that it, a single drug doesn't work, that drugs need to be given in combination and no single drug is effective. You mentioned hydroxychloroquine, we've learned that actually you can uh, treat this illness without using any hydroxychloroquine. We've um, uh, interviewed and worked with doctors all over the world. But in general, the Cadillac program, 
would be like what President Trump received, where he receives a monoclonal antibody infusion up front. So did Rudy Giuliani. And then the other drugs are sequenced in. We can sequence in um, hydroxychloroquine or ivermectin plus azithromycin and uh, or doxycycline. We can use inhaled steroids now, which are very effective, pulmocart or budesonide. Oral corticosteroids, prednisone is perfectly fine. There's an anti-inflammatory medicine called colchicine, very effective. And then on the back end, we use full dose aspirin, 325 milligrams. And then we use forms of blood thinners like heparin, low mycoid heparin, or oral anticoagulants. In total, it's about four to six drugs. It's really only in high risk patients who need it, age over 50 with medical problems. And um, uh, uh, the um, medications work in synergy with one another. A mild case maybe only needs five days of treatment. The average person our age, about uh, uh, 10 days. And then some patients, seniors at nursing homes, uh, those individuals over age 80, my experience is it takes about 30 days of treatment. But I've successfully managed uh, many patients, even up to age 90 years old. I've gotten them through the illness. They don't need to be hospitalized or go on the ventilator. This is really good news for Americans. And that this overall approach results in about an 85% reduction in hospitalization and death. But the interesting thing is what you mentioned is some of these drugs have become so politicized. I did a seminar with Dr. Chetty in South Africa, and he said that hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin have become so politicized, he gave up on them. And he just treats the back end of the illness. So he uses a combination of inhaled steroids, oral corticosteroids. He uses uh, Singular or Montelukast, and then aspirin and heparin on the back end and he's able to prevent nearly all the hospitalizations and thousands of patients. So what patients in America need to know is they need early treatment. Get a hold of their doctor or quickly get to the telemedicine services. Don't waste time. We don't, the only way someone gets admitted to the hospital nowadays is they get no treatment. They sit at home for two weeks, they get progressively sick and they end up in the hospital. Doesn't have to happen. Someone with COVID goes through three phases, viral replication, inflammation, and abnormal blood clotting. I had the doctor go through the stages. You picked up on an important uh, development is that we've understand that the illness has three dimensions. First, in the very first days is viral replication. So that's where drugs that impair the virus, like the monoclonal antibodies, hydroxychloroquine, ivermectin, if we could, we'd give remdesivir in the first day. That's where the drug really works. Um, but after the first few days of viral replication, what happens is the dangerous spike protein on the outside of the virus, that sp uh, spicule sub, uh, structure that you see on the ball, that triggers blood vessel damage and inflammation to very high levels. Uh, this this um, virus has a cytokine signature we've never seen before, very high levels of interleukin-6. It just it knocks your sock off when we see it. And that level of inflammation is associated with high fever, Patients don't feel good, muscle aches, sometimes a GI disturbances, the microbiome gets disturbed. And then what is triggered is abnormal blood clotting. We've never seen a virus that causes blood clotting like this one does. And it's, the blood clotting is unusual because it's the spike protein uh, impales red blood cells and actually causes red blood cells to stick together. That's called hemagglutination and it injures the platelets. So it can drop the platelet count and cause blood clotting at the same time. So we have a, a situation where we have viral replication, cytokine storm or inflammation, and, and uh, uh, abnormal blood coagulation. That's the reason why a single drug doesn't work. So I knew that right away when people declared hydroxychloroquine doesn't work or ivermectin doesn't work. We've heard that for every drug. Remdesivir doesn't work. 
convalescent plasma doesn't work. Well, of course, no single drug works because there's three complicated elements, the uh, infection. And so what doctors quickly learned, the leading doctors learned, is that we look for a signal of benefit in these drugs, acceptable safety, put them into multi-drug regimens, and that's how we save patients. Doctors who recommend this kind of treatment face punishment by the major health departments. Dr. McCullough provides me with some background. You know, it's amazing you bring that up, Michael. Um, Millionaire Steve Kirsch has put out a, um, a challenge, and it's a $2 million challenge. He's done this in the last month, and he says, I challenge anybody to show that the National Institutes of Health or the CDC has done anything right with respect to its treatment recommendations. He challenged that. Not a single person in the world has come forward claiming that the CDC or NIH was right about anything on treatment. That is a stunning revelation that the entire world understands that our regulatory bodies have been completely wrong. So when they stay, when they gave the National Institutes of Health put out its first set of guidelines in the fall, it says, don't treat the patient. That was completely wrong. Let the patient get progressively sick, completely wrong. Let the patient get forced into the hospital, completely wrong. Once they get into the hospital, still don't treat them. Wait until they require oxygen, completely wrong. By the time they require oxygen, there's actually micro blood clots in the lungs. So they recommended that stage to give remdesivir, completely wrong. Remdesivir is actually for a viral replication two weeks earlier. So it is a colossal blunder. Our public health agencies right now, their houses are on fire. We have an absolute disaster at the public health regulatory level at all um, uh, uh, stations right now. And America right now is bypassing them. America is going right to practicing doctors. My phone is ringing off the hook. I've basically told them, listen, I, the doctor's judgment supersedes what our regulatory agencies right now. If your doctors tell you, you know, giving the best advice on COVID, we've got to go with that. So when a doctor prescribes a medicine for a patient with COVID, that decision reigns supreme. And so this idea that there can be a backlash or there can be penalties or what have you to doctors, listen, we take care of patients with all these different problems across the board all day long. Am I suddenly going to get penalized if I prescribe a cholesterol medicine or if I prescribe a blood thinner for someone with atrial fibrillation? So I certainly can prescribe these medicines for patients with COVID. But do, do you, any of your, your, uh, your colleagues uh, listen anyway? I mean, people who, well, I, I hear it, but I don't want to get punished. Well, it, it, you know, people have labeled me as being courageous. Well, I have to tell you, it's not courage. It's, 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 it's moral and ethical and fiduciary integrity. And I find it absolutely that anyone would threaten me with, with um, uh, actions as I'm trying to take care of a patient using judgment with FDA-approved drugs that are prescribed appropriately off-label, supported with the best evidence we've had. In fact, I've published the most widely cited papers on how to do this in the world. And so this idea is absolutely untenable. All of those who have, thought to, who have sought to threaten doctors and intentionally hurt patients, one by one, justice will be served.
In case you just joined us, our guest is Dr. Peter McCullough. He's an internist, cardiologist, epidemiologist, and professor of medicine at Texas A&M College of Medicine in Dallas, also a major voice attacking the established agencies involved in fighting COVID. I next put a question to him about the COVID vaccines. In a clear-cut manner, based on concrete evidence, uh, can you explain why this vaccine is not safe and effective, even though Pfizer and Moderna provided evidence demonstrating 90% efficiency and that while it's not foolproof, the risks due to COVID vaccine outweigh the risks due to dying of COVID? I think everyone should understand that we're all... Um, participating in medical history. And, and so what we know now is not the same as what we know last year or even six months ago. So we have an evolving knowledge. This is what we know. Uh, it became known in May that the dangerous part of the virus is called the spike protein, the spicule on the surface. The, it's now known that the spike protein was the target of gain of function research. There was research done in a Chinese lab, partially funded by the United States National Institutes of Health. This gain of function research made the spike protein, instead, instead of it being naturally cleaved by an enzyme, a human enzyme called furin, they gain of function research made the spike protein impenetrable. It made it super strong. And because now this virus, which was easily handled before by the human body, now the spike protein is super strong and it can't be broken down. It goes right into cells. So it's far more contagious. And when the spike protein goes in cells, it's almost like a, like a, like a shard of glass. It goes through the blood vessels, ripping the blood vessels, causing blood clots, causing organ injuries. It's all about the spike protein. Well, the discovery was that the spike protein itself could be utilized to um, stimulate the body to make antibodies. So the great gamble of the uh, vaccine development program was to trick the body, the human body, our bodies into making this dangerous spike protein, this dangerous gain of function research spike protein. And that's what the vaccines are doing. So the um, Messenger RNA vaccines, which are Pfizer, Moderna, the adenoviral vac vaccines, which are J&J and AstraZeneca, they all work to cause the human body to produce the spike protein. Now, when the um, vaccines came out of the clinical trials, our understanding was, and what was in the FDA regulatory binders, is that the, the vaccination stayed in the arm. It locally stayed in the arm. It didn't circulate around in the body that the messenger RNA or the adenoviral uh, genetic material stayed in the muscle in the arm and the spike protein was produced locally. That's what our uh, understanding was and we formed a reaction to it. The uh, clinical trials were done in very low risk people. And instead of the standard 24 months of safety, it was truncated to two months. And they re you know, recruited very well populations of individuals, in fact, J&J, &J, uh, their clinical trials program recruited 60% of people who had no medical problems. That's actually hard to find in research. And they found that whether the patient received placebo or the vaccine, the rate of getting COVID was less than 1%. So it's important for Americans and people in the world to understand 
that the vaccines were developed, uh, even in the heat of the pandemic back in the fall, with a chance of coming in contact in less than 1%. And we believe this is true today, that people get the vaccine, they have less than a 1% chance of ever coming in contact with COVID. So we know that the vaccines as they apply today will have no impact on the epidemic curves. They can't because they have less than a 1% public health impact. The only thing that influences the curves is actually treating the virus and reducing hospitalization and death. Vaccines will never solve the problem because it's a less than 1% public health impact. Well, having said that, they still looked okay coming out of the gate. And as an internist and cardiologist, as a medical doctor, researcher, I see patients every day, like all other doctors, I recommended the COVID-19 vaccine. In my, in my practice today, 70% of my patients have received the COVID-19 vaccine. I'm very pro-vaccine. I've received all the uh, standard vaccines myself. But what happened over time, Michael, is we started to see cases of patients dying after the vaccine, seeing patients hospitalized after the vaccine and in large numbers. And as we sit here today, we've had over 4,400 patients die after the COVID-19 vaccine. 40% of them die, die, die on days one, two, and three. Did you say 44,000? Uh, I'm sorry, 4,400 patients die after the COVID-19 vaccine on days one, two, and three. Thanks for correcting me, 4,400. And we've had 14,000 hospitalizations. In Europe, there's been over 10,000 patients die over the COVID-19 vaccine. Now, people have asked, well, how does this stack up compared to other vaccines? Well, I can tell you that the typical number for all the vaccines, all 70 vaccines in the United States applied to many hundreds of millions of dose administrations, the numbers of deaths or hospitalizations or severe reactions that would ever be reported on a scoreboard would be less than 200 a year. So the COVID-19 vaccine program in five months has exceeded all the safety parameters and all the safety events of all vaccines administered to all patients in medical history. So people have already claimed that the COVID-19 vaccine program is the most dangerous vaccine program ever carried out in U.S. history. Yeah. And when I guess they when, when it does come up that you're, this is violating protocols, they say, well, what, it's, it's an emergency use or, or something like that that uh, allows it to go ahead? There's several aspects of this that um, are, are working, I think, against safety. So the first thing is this is an investigational program. So and when people take the vaccine, they are required to sign consent that says this is an investigation. That means it's research. So there should be a unbiased, separate clinical event adjudication committee. There should be a data safety monitoring board. There should be an investigational review board or ethics board. When we do research, there's always oversight committees that are separate from the sponsors or stakeholders. And here, the stakeholders are Pfizer, Moderna, J&J, and AstraZeneca. We know that the World Health Organization, Gavi, Gates Foundation, the Centers for Disease Control, the FDA, and the NIH are all stakeholders. In fact, the National Institutes of Health holds patent positions on the Moderna patent. So they're all stakeholders. So we can't have those people reviewing the deaths and the hospitalizations, America has to have separate panels reviewing these. Astonishingly, as we sit here today, there, is, there are no review panels. There's no safety checks. There's no safety mechanisms on this program. 
And because the um, vaccines are not fully FDA approved, the manufacturers don't have to present important safety information to patients. Normally, when you get prescribed a drug and you pick it up, a, uh, a folded sheet of paper that outlines all the safety information so uh, patients can be fairly informed on safety. Normally, when something's advertised on TV, they'll give the benefits of the drug or agent, but they'll also tell you what the side effects are. Here, because it's emergency use authorization, there's no fair balance requirements in place. So the stakeholders are promoting vaccination wildly on TV, but they're not fairly presenting Americans with safety. The only view of safety is to go to the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System, VAERS, and then see the data as they accumulate. And that's the reason why these numbers are so shocking. I think they've really snuck up on doctors. Doctors have largely been in a trance recommending patients get the vaccines. And when I talk to my colleagues and say, do you, know, do you realize there's been 4,400 deaths that have occurred? 14,000 hospitalizations, it's really a shock. They're like, where are you getting this information from? I said, these are the events reported to the CDC. I have reported some of these events myself, Michael. It takes about a half an hour to do a report. I have to go through many screens. I have to put my doctor's information, my license. Uh, they're only capturing one of two of the Pfizer Moderna shots. So they have to back calculate. We have to have the vaccine card and the lot number to do it. They are not keeping track of someone's already had COVID and they don't need the vaccine. They're already immune. They're not keeping track of that. And so uh, what we know, and there's serious warnings that say that it's punishable by imprisonment or federal fines if we falsify the reports. I can tell you all those uh, over 4,400 uh, deaths and over 14,000 hospitalizations, 14, hospitalizations, they've really occurred. I think they've really occurred and they may be the tip of the iceberg. Um, and, and there's also the, the long-term ris risks like uh, Bell's policy or, or transverse myelitis, other factors that it takes a year or so to, to reveal, you know, and I don't think there's been any significant testing. Um, do you expect that, uh, that death could be an even higher priority a year or two from now than it is today? Well, each week we see more deaths coming in so we have some states now that are getting to zero COVID deaths per day. In Texas, we've had a few of those. So we know on those days, there's more vaccine deaths than there are COVID deaths. I hope Americans understand this. There's a tremendous price that's being paid with American lives for this COVID vaccine. The long-term effects, there have been, uh, uh, I think over a thousand cases of Bell's palsy or paralyzed face on one side reported in the safety database. We know the spike protein goes to the brain the dangerous spike protein, it can damage uh, 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 astrocytes or oligodendrocytes, the cells inside the brain. And there may be, there are certainly uh, reports of headaches, blood clots forming in the vein, in the brain. In fact, the FDA paused the program for blood clots in the brain of women. Uh, in 18 countries in Europe, AstraZeneca was removed from the market for a period of time because of blood clots. Yet the vaccine program uh, goes on. And so one of the great concerns is that the vaccine program is offered as being elective by the CDC. It's simply an elective investigational program. You don't have to do it. Um, it what's happened is now it's been weaponized uh, from a sociological perspective and people feel forced to take this vaccine, which they know has serious side effects. They know um, there are fatalities occurring and hospitalizations occurring. And so the tension in America 
is rising every, every day. I've never felt such a tense time where in a sense there's this vaccine, but it's been weaponized against the people. Wow. Um, maybe one more question. Uh, I know that uh, there have been you know very high-profile people like uh, Zelenko and, and Rish and Didier Rayol. They've all been attacked. And I'm wondering, with you're being very outspoken, and then you have the unmitigated gall to be credible. <laughs> I mean, what kind of threats have you encountered through all of this? Well, I can tell you, I'm an internist and cardiologist. I stepped out of my usual role to face the crisis because I did not see infectious disease doctors, allergists, immunologists, uh, pulmonologists. I didn't see others addressing the millions of Americans who were developing COVID-19 at home. Everyone was focusing in the inpatient uh, realm where we still have ICU uh, mortality rates at 28 days of 38%. The in-hospital outcomes are not good. The opportunity was to treat patients as outpatients. And now there's such a overwhelming positive response from Americans. We have uh, four national telemedicine services, 15 regional telemedicine services, 250 treating doctors. We have treating doctors in every state. America has basically just bypassed the uh, ivory tower large medical centers and they're getting treatment. We had two Senate testimonies on this in the fall, huge breakthrough to America. Um, uh, the treating doctors in a sense have become American heroes. And as our agency staffers get on TV and, uh, uh, basically bumble on about masks and, and vaccines. What America does, they don't care about masks and vaccines. They, they want to know how to get treatment to avoid hospitalization and death. So what I've told to my detractors is that any of my detractors who've attempted to personally go after me from a uh, academic or professional perspective, I have over 600 publications in the National Library of Medicine. I have over 40 papers in a year on COVID-19. I have chaired, participated in 24 data safety monitoring boards uh, for the FDA and for pharmaceutical and device companies. And I've also seen, examined, and treated patients with COVID-19. To my knowledge, in a single person, in a single person, I am the most experienced and qualified person in the world to opine on COVID-19. And if anybody wants to challenge me on that, bring it on. Dr. McCullough, it's been a pleasure and an honor speaking to you today. Thank you so much for your dedicated work and, and for sharing your analysis with my listeners. Thank you. That was Peter McCullough, internist, cardiologist, and professor of medicine at Texas A&M College of Medicine in Dallas, Texas, United States. In spite of the many treatments you heard on the show, please know I cannot give prescriptive treatments to sick patients. Listeners suspected of having COVID should try to reach out to doctors of whichever COVID views fit their preference and possibly share some of the information you heard on this show. If you are stuck, you can reach out through mbtelehealth.ca in Manitoba or any of the multiple telemedicine agencies across Canada and the United States. You've been listening to the Global Research News Hour, a program funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on occupied Anishinaabegaking, the homeland of the Métis and the historical territory of the Nahiawak and the Nakota. 
The show is aired on other radio stations across Canada and the United States and is available for streaming or download at globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, please email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I've been the show's host and producer, Michael Welch. Thank you once again for listening.